Before we get to this week's podcast, I want to tell you about Digiday Plus. That's our premium membership product, and it gets you Digiday Magazine. We just finished uh, our issue, our last issue of the year, and a steady stream of exclusive research about the industry. You'll also be part of our Digiday Plus Slack community and exclusive member events. So we recently held a live podcast uh, with Lindsay Nelson, and we're doing another one in January with Howard Mittman, the CRO of the Bleacher Report. Um, so you should join us. So if you are not a member, please sign up. Uh, go to digiday.com. You'll see Digiday Plus tab there. It is only $395 a year, but for you, our podcast listeners, we have a discount. Enter the code podcast at checkout, and you will get 25% off. That is podcast. Again, go to digiday.com and go to the tab at the top that says Digiday Plus. Brand is more important than it's ever been. Companies that grew up with passerby readers are dead. And if you don't have a consumer who's actively looking for your content, it is very difficult to build ancillary business models. If you look at what Snapchat's doing with advertising and storytelling, it's clear that digital can be more than the thing that we think it is. Welcome to the Digital Day Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. I'm joined today by Emily Bell, the director of the Tao Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia University. Hey, Brian. Nice to be here. Uh, we're recording this at the end of the year. Um, I was just saying before we started that maybe it was Annus Horribilis for digital journalism, but maybe it was a very good year. So it depends on, on the journalism aspect and then there's the business aspect. Let's start on the business aspect. Right. Okay. Um, there's, Not great. They're <laughs> starting at the bottom, Brian. <laughs> but I'm trying to end on a good note, right. I think. So, but we got to start somewhere. So let's start with the drumbeat of. There's been this drumbeat of bad news. There's been, you know, uh, lots of layoffs, lots of cutbacks, um, people missing numbers, um, the duopoly, uh, fake news. <laughs> like, how long is your list? Yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. A, it's a, it's, it's a damning. a bad year. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, all right. So what do you think, looking back, what are the three most concerning sort of long-term structural trends? So I guess that I'm, I'm going to think of two and three while I'm talking about one, but okay. the big one is the end of advertising as a reliable way of supporting journalism. You know, that's the big one, right? Yeah. So we hoped that when organizations like BuzzFeed appeared, you know, whatever it was, almost 10 years ago now, um, we had new organizations like Mike and Mashable and Vice, etc. We thought that they were going to develop models that would be sustainable in a digital environment because they're digitally native. It's that word for things that yeah. were born, you know, entirely into a digital ecosystem. Um, and they all went down the route of um, advertising supported. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were saying, you know, Jonah Peretti, who's the founder of BuzzFeed, was saying things like, we're figuring it out. This is, you know, we're going to be like Paramount Studios. We're going to be a media company for the next hundred years. Um, and then uh, they missed their numbers <laughs> this year, which isn't actually, I can talk in a minute about why I don't think it's quite as bad as everybody says. Yeah. Um, but suddenly all, all, all of the, and BuzzFeed is Because like, everyone fibs to their investors when they're the, trying to get the, money. Yeah. And it's kind of well, like, they're optimistic. They're very optimistic. They're optimistic, but also like if you're an investor and kind of numbers are a bit shaky, you maybe want that news out sure. there because you want to really mo motivate <laughs> to come as the management to yeah. do something about it and everyone's like, in on it every bit so 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 it could be that you know they're still growing 
But this expectation of what digital advertising would deliver has just not not materialized at all. So midway through the year, if you remember, we had the famous pivot to video, Mm -hmm. uh, which was the moment where actually we'd had kind of um, places like Mashable uh, had, had, had... completely got rid of you know one set of journalists from a newsroom pivoted to video uh you had mike saying we're going to pivot to video because it's what the advertisers wanted and at this point people were so desperate to find any advertising model that worked right. that uh they were completely changing their journalism model mm-hmm. and that was really in response to pressure from particularly facebook right so video strategies tend to be facebook strategies yeah and it's like if you're going to get an audience you're going to get advertising you have to do a different format and i think that was a bad moment because people lost traffic they lost numbers they found that they were being pushed to do things that they weren't necessarily very good at um and there wasn't a kind of sustainability to it so so i guess that that's like one big trend is this sudden disappearance of digital advertising because all the digital advertising mm-hmm. is going to <coughs> google and facebook but not all well not, not all. all like 98 percent of the new <laughs> growth in i mean it is an extraordinary i position, have my doubts right? about those numbers so that's my i do we, we are actually working on something because there's there's if you look at the traffic acquisition costs of google they pass a lot of that on um, I, so it does go somewhere. I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. So and when, I, and when we talk with people, there is growth that's happening. There is growth that's happening and people are figuring out different types of models and different ways. So, you know, kind of like native uh, has been a huge trend this year. So so, so let's take one, one big trend, which is like, you know, the decline. Okay, not the end, but the decline okay. of advertising. My God, I'm the optimist here. This is a... <laughs> It's a strange I'm, I'm actually a long-term pessimist, so I'm I'm That's actually perfect. quite happy because this has been a great year for pessimism. <laughs> yeah. Pessimists, we've been able to go. We told you so. Um, so, so there's this overall long-term decline of um, uh, advertising. A kind of a micro trend underneath that has then been this kind of rise of the power of the platforms in dictating format, right, for journalists, particularly video but it's going to be voice next mm-hmm. if it isn't voice already i would already. even argue it's beyond format it's dictating it's strategy everything it's honestly know? it's everything it's strategy they're commissioning they're reshaping newsrooms they're not necessarily intending to do it but it's what's happening i think i mean you know kind of you guys are closer to it yeah. than i am because thank god i don't have to come in every day on a media business but everything we hear we've been doing a big research project on this which is kind of entering its second year and we've seen a really big shift um much of which is dictated by what google or apple news or facebook or snapchat is actually doing and saying to publishers right so that's that's the second trend and then i guess the third trend is the rise of the is the rise of the reader or the viewer it's this kind of pivot to pivot to pivot to readers uh which is the, the the kind of the thing that i thought would never happen so i have i have been so spectacularly wrong on this i'm almost embarrassed to talk okay. about it but this idea that actually the free model is not going to work for yeah. other people and <clears throat> that it has to be a membership or a subscription model yeah. and that's come true this year in a way it hadn't really and there are hopeful before. signs there i'm gonna i'm gonna Huge even get in hopeful. some some optimism here yeah. uh, the new york times today as we're recording this yeah. uh you know said they passed three and a half million yeah. that's a remarkable story it's unbelievable it's like i mean i remember i remember them announcing do you remember the the 
the holy wall. <laughs> like, yeah, like yeah. it's going to be a paywall. It's not a paywall. It's not a paywall. It's not a paywall. It's like a sponge. <laughs> it's like a. It's yeah. like a wall made of sponge. Um, and there were several of us. Might you know that that many of us kind of were so skeptical of the numbers that they were talking about. A year ago, year and a half ago, uh, Chief Executive Mark Thompson, um, uh, a Brit, obviously, so always have a Brit in your organisation. Mm-hmm. We're very good for, you know, uh, <laughs> karma. Um, he said we're going to reach $800 million of digital revenue by 2020. And everybody was like, oh, I don't think you're going to do that. Right. <laughs> That's, that, that, would, that would mean something really extraordinary would have to happen in the trajectory of subscriptions. And then, lo and behold, something really extraordinary did happen, which to, is, you know, you so, had an election. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's, it's the real definition of extraordinary, which right. means outside of the ordinary, not right. necessarily good. Uh, and that would be Donald Trump. Is that sustainable? I mean, I think that's always the question about whether this Trump bump will lead to the Trump churn once once people normalize. So I think it's I think it's such an interesting question because we don't know how long this this abnorm, this this extraordinariness is is going to go on for. You know, it could be um, four years, it could be eight years, it could be four months. Um, and as you say, as it normalizes and people get used to it, I've never lived through, I'm not old, I'm like really old, <laughs> I've never lived through this kind of news cycle. And I was talking mm-hmm. to um, Marty Barron and Dean Baquet, the editors of the Washington Post and the New York Times last week at an event where I was interviewing them. And they're even older than I am. And they were saying this is really kind of like 9-11, you know, kind of uh, the wars <laughs> that day. started after that. None of that was quite like this because it is every day and you you just can't predict where any of this is going. And it's happening kind of on a global scale, right? So, you know, where I come from, Britain, that's, that's almost as, as kind of bonkers sort of uh, news kind of um, agenda happening. You have North Korea, you have kind of, you know, still these kind of ongoing situations in the Middle East. It's kind of everywhere, right? There's so much of it. So this idea of, is it just a Trump bump? Do people just put their hands in their pockets for real journalism um, or for or for the opinions they want to support. I think maybe that's right, but something might happen um, in the course of, of that normalizing, which is it becomes normal to pay for news. Yes, I think that's the key because when you look at these subscription models, you end up against this number of 2 to 3% will end up converting outside of right. specialty areas. Right. Um, and we had, I, I had, uh, was talking to Meredith Levine on, on this podcast and she was talking about how they have to bend that curve. They have to get yeah. to, to a 10%. Like you're not going to get to the yeah. Netflix numbers. No, 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 you're not. Not unless you, you know, not unless your it, scripted shows strategy goes really, yeah, well, really well. Unless something but, really changes yeah, no, with, with yeah. consumer behavior. I think that's right. But I think that, you know, we, we have a generation now, um, that's kind of growing up not paying for media, but they are doing things like they're giving to Patreon and they're kind of participating in Kickstarters and they know about how to kind of throw up a Just Giving page. So I think that, you know, that, that how we think about payment as transactional or sort of in terms of, you know, how you express your support for something, I think has changed. Payment mechanisms have changed. I mean, when I was at The Guardian, which was oh, seven years ago now, um, in the very early days of paywalls, you know, there was constant pressure to throw up a paywall. It was really expensive. It was very, very bad for 
um, user experience that was difficult mm-hmm. to get through and people fiddling around with their credit cards and then it wouldn't work and then you had to pay to support everything because people were paying for it. Um, and it was just a kind of, it was like a non-starter. Now when you look at actually kind of payment methods which are being developed, both by the kind of news organizations which actually aren't that great, but also by the big tech companies. So, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like you look at the kind of the intention of Apple News to kind of push subscriptions. You hear from... Um, Facebook and Google, for goodness sake, now talking about actually we're thinking about how we can kind of help yeah. subscriptions. That's, Although this is all new. it's interesting because I, I, I mean, we there's a, an unbelievable amount of, of startups and about a, of money that were put into businesses that right. basically were trying to take a piece of an advertising dollar as it right. moved from the marketer theoretically to a publisher. Um, there has not been any near that level of investment into providing the tools that enable direct consumer revenue businesses. I think that's a really good observation. And we just, I, I my, so this is where I become an optimist, stop being a pessimist. And, oh, good. And we're like you, switching roles. <laughs> as you say, we're right at the beginning of that journey. And, you know, the, the organization that I came from, The Guardian, where I still, full disclosure, sit on the Scott Trust, which is the ownership kind of board, you know, they had a member, they had a subscri- subscription membership drive. So, so in other words, you can still get everything for free yeah. on the website. <laughs> um, I personally was privately, don't tell Kathleen, the editor, was a little bit skeptical of it. Um, and suddenly it's becoming a really significant revenue stream. Yeah. And pretty good numbers. Pretty good numbers. 800,000 people signing it, you know, giving in some, some form or another, you know, that again, it's just kind of, we're entering a different era. But this is, this is significant just to go to this because I mean, the guardian was always the sort of, the comment is free. It has to be free. It really was like, that. It was very podcasting instantly. Very, (laughs) very dedicated to this idea of 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 free. Yeah, and then the world kind of changed a little bit. Yes, it did. You have to change when the world changes. You have to go to you know we you have to create something which integrates with the social web when everybody's going to the social web. You know what people forget is that between because I'm so old uh, between between 2000 and 2006 there was actually a lot of money to be made out of digital advertising. You know, kind Mm -hmm. of we 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 did really good numbers in those years, Um, and lots of people who had subscription services or registration services even missed out on a ton of money and they all took them down you know? right. so, so people could sort of just forget this that there was a phase when digital advertising really worked subscriptions subscription revenues revenues really didn't that's flipped partly because of market structures partly because of consumer behavior and partly because the tech just makes it easier now to pay mm-hmm. makes micropayments easier makes kind of you know sort of anonymous payments easier it's not the same as it used to be you don't need the same kind of commitment to something that you used yeah, to Yeah, and, and it's more flexible now. It, yeah, it used exactly. to be an all or nothing. Exactly. And I think, but the question about will people just kind of say, oh, well, the world will return turn to normal. We're sick of paying for journalism. We'll just go back to reading free stuff, Huffington Post and BuzzFeed on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't know about that. I think that, the, I, I think that people understand that you have to you know but the people have always given pretty generously to things like npr in this country yeah and i do think that there is an understanding that if you don't pay for it it's not going to get done 
Um, whether or not that model is ever going to work for everybody, I don't know. There's a massive crisis in this mm-hmm. country at the moment in local journalism, which needs solving because that's really important. Yeah, because you talk, we talk about the top of the market. Go yeah. to go to the New York Times, go to the Washington Post. Yeah. But then, you know, what happens? You can get down to right. the Akron paper. Right. Well, the, you know, if there is a paper in Akron yeah, anymore, which is, be. you know, well, I mean, this is a this is such a serious concern because I think we've I think you're right that we've often thought about how the market is split into these different sort of segments and oh that's local it's over there mm-hmm. i think what we're seeing though is the fact that if local goes away um and it's been the year of fake news and this kind of whole sort of concern about information security and trust in journalism etc people don't have a local news organization with journalists and photographers that they see that they feel connected to and that has a much bigger effect than just money going into local journalism it actually affects the whole news ecosystem and i think that's something that researchers and academics have kind of suspected for a while and mm-hmm. now it's now it's really showing up have that, you seen any model that is working on the local level well there are kind of there there are really sort of some the problem with local is that some models work in some places but nobody has found a model that works everywhere yeah. so you have things like you know um you have, well one one model that pretty much works everywhere is public radio so a lot of actual kind of journalistic um innovation the local level is done where you have a pretty strong local npr affiliate in the market because they can kind of experiment and they can do things um which it's been really hard for anybody with particularly legacy print to do yeah. um while you have to turn a profit as well there are some really interesting experiments um like um digital democracy which comes out of um cal poly which is about sort of really lowering the cost of access to local data and the kind of journalism or the, the projects you can do around that there are places like you know the voice of san diego which has actually been going again it's kind of you know it's 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 um it's a radio station it's been going forever uh well you know 10 years (laughs) or more which is forever in digital journalism and being pretty and being very successful you've got uh small kind of local startups like i think you know the uh i was out on the west coast um talking to uh people who had set up the, the 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 berkeley cider um mm-hmm. saying hey we're doing we're actually doing really well but but there's not a and there are still one or two things like you know residual kind of like patch teams who are still doing kind of good work but it's a very it's a very uneven picture yeah. i mean look at new york right so new york gothamist dna info village voice all gone within the space of like a month two months mm-hmm. um New York Daily News, bought, sold by Mort Zuckerman, bought by Tronk. Who knows what's going to happen to the newsroom there? Places like WNYC and New York One, which rely on that kind of, you know, they rely on that local reporting that comes from those outlets, are saying there is a real crisis now in how do we get these local, you know, who is covering the state house? Who's covering the courthouse? This is in New York. This isn't at Akron, Ohio. Yeah. This isn't one of the most densely populated, richest cities on earth. Can't support local journalism. Do you worry about the, that, that it turns into the reliance on the sort of quote unquote civic minded billionaire? 
I mean, because like everyone likes a billionaire riding to the right. rescue when it's Jeff Bezos, <laughs> when it's, when it's but, our they, billionaire. but they don't like it when it's the Koch brothers coming. The Koch brothers. Well, it's a, you know, this is. I mean, I come from the UK where this was actually the model for media ownership for about a right. hundred years. Um, was slightly right wing uh, billionaires okay. <laughs> buying and uh, and pouring money into loss making new, new news organisations. But you're right, which is you know, can we rely on that? Um, you know. This is going to be the model, you know. This is get, this is going to be one of the this is going to be yeah. one of the dominant models in the next couple of years, which is we just people, ha- we just have to hope our billionaires are benign for the most part. Well, I mean, you know, we have some benign billionaires uh, with a lot of money who've taken arguably a lot of money out of the media market. And when I say benign, I mean people who are expressing support for journalism. Because, you know, I mean, if, if, if the Koch brothers come into the market and they want to put money into, they want to really invest in journalism, um, then, you know, whatever the political, you know, co- co- whatever the political colour of their money, that in some ways is a good thing, right? We don't want a uniform we want mm-hmm. a pluralistic media landscape. I think the problem is when you have billionaires um, like Peter Thiel, dare I say, who say that they support journalism, but their ver- their version of supporting journalism is shutting down the outlets like Gorka that they don't like. Yeah. Um, so, you know, kind of, it's possible. So the Mercers funding their version of of information is is a well, net the, positive. I don't think the Mercers are funding journalism. I think they're funding propaganda, aren't they? That you know that that the, they're not investing in journalism. Um, okay, so you could say, well, Breitbart, that's journalism. Breitbart is it journalism? I don't know. They kind of they they ran uh, they run that curious mix of not true mm-hmm. uh, fake news as we as we as we called it. Uh, and some stuff which is true, uh, the Mercers kind of are a different beast, which um, sort of, you know, has a lot of money in political communications as well. And this is, you know, so this is the other thing, which is, you know, what counts. This is where all billionaires, whether they're left or right, have um, challenges. And you know, They don't buy media just to buy media. Nobody buys media just to buy media. I mean, nobody influence. buys, you know, you don't get your money back. It's, about, it's not, <laughs> historically, it's not, it, well, it used to be a good investment. Right. Safe investment. It's, right. These days, it's, you could probably, and, you know, go into Bitcoin. And people, I mean, so, you know, the Cokes say, well, we don't want, we're not seeking any influence at all. And we'll have, it will all, you know, if we buy Time Magazine, it will all be handled completely kind of independently. Um. You know, Rupert Murdoch said that when he bought the Wall Street Journal, right. there was a whole board to make sure that he didn't interfere directly with the independence of the editorial. And of course, that kind of just disappeared, you know, almost overnight. Um, and, you know, rich people buy new, news organizations and media outlets. Like, why shouldn't they kind of interfere in it in a way? Um, at least we know they're doing it and we can assess their. So, you know, if the Mercers want to invest in Breitbart fine um, but we have mm-hmm. to know we have to know what else the Mercers are investing in you know who they're backing which data companies they're buying what those data companies are doing how they're putting advertising through or how they're boosting certain types of kind of posts through Facebook you know that that that, that there's always been media is a messy business there have always been bad people owning media mm-hmm. and they've always had um, really mixed motives for doing so uh, I think the real problem in America is that you don't have, you haven't developed a um, 
kind of what I call sort of balanced market for media outside profit, you know, profit making news organizations. So nonprofit news is growing here, but it's still tiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're you, capitalist people. You are so capitalist. Like when I moved <laughs> here, it's like, oh my God, like it's like everything is about money. Everything is about money. And then it was like, oh, so it's about money because you are basically kind of strapped across the it's engine of capital. It's who you are. And you don't <laughs> like these public service organizations and you don't like no. um, government intervention. Or government I mean, look at support. NPR. I mean, weirdly enough, NPR is like uh, controversial in some yeah. quarters. Very controversial in some quarters. Actually, uh, NPR is kind of interesting. I mean, the BBC. Try the BBC here. No, well, so this would not happen. But I, okay, I'm going to put some money on the BBC happening here in one way or another. I don't. Th- I don't see the government's not going to sanction it. I think you're going to see a major intervention in the market around sustainable non-profit or public service journalism. Okay. I actually think that there are enough people now talking about it. And saying the real problem is, you know, you have, I mean, you have these amazing, (laughs) I say this, I'm paid by one. Um, You have these amazing, you know, very, very, very successful uh, not-for-profit organizations in the United States called universities. (laughs) Like Harvard is probably the richest ones in the entire, on the entire planet. Um, You know, the fact that you don't have that kind of independent endowed media function is is really odd. It looks odd in a world where you really need a kind of a market which is split between advertising, subscription, and then kind of public service. At the moment, that's a that's a really tiny part of American journalism. And if you're going to supply local markets with local with 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 journalism that doesn't scale. The money's got to come from somewhere. Right. And for the most part, that's not going to be advertising. That dream is dead. I don't think so. I don't think, and I don't think it's, and I think it's fine. I think it's great that people want to pay for journalism, but we should all be a bit concerned about people who can pay getting a better quality of news than people who can't. We don't want to go into that world. I don't think. Being informed becomes a luxury good. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. And I think, and I think that, one of the things that public media has always done is make sure that, that doesn't happen, right? Mm-hmm. So it's 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 always been something which has been accessible to everybody, um, and available, and there are no kind of barriers to entry. Uh, that's worryingly under pressure, I think now that you know, kind of just having a data plan on your phone is a barrier to entry. Um, paywalls are a barrier to entry. Uh, you know, kind of all sorts of, there are all sorts of ways whether or not Facebook will show you the stories that, that actually you need to see as opposed to the stories you want to see. Mm-hmm. That's another factor in all of this. You know, we haven't, we haven't really had a conversation, um, a sort of a joined up public conversation yet about what happens as we mm-hmm. enter this kind of post-broadcast era of media. Do governments seem to get more involved when it comes to the platforms, in particular Facebook, and perhaps regulating them as utilities? Well, I think they're not going to. I mean, you can see what Ajit Pai's doing. Not here. (laughs) He's basically gone, it's come in, he's gone, let me look in the media regulation cupboard. Oh, there are a few old things lying around in here. We should just throw them all out, including what's this thing? Net neutrality? What the hell is this? Don't need this anymore. Um, But in Europe, there's a lot lot of, they're under attack. You know, it's not that I hate Facebook. You know, I, it's not that I, I love Twitter. I'm on it all the time. Um, they're just sort of Facebook and Google in particular are just too big. You know, they are too big. Are you in the break them up camp? I think breaking them up is 
difficult because actually the benefits you get from um, networked economies within the, you know, nobody really wants to kind of have a yeah. worse search engine. There's not going to be a public, there's not going to be a ton of public support, I don't think, for... No, I think uh, they make people's lives easier, but I think that they that, that, that there has to be some internal, some self-regulation or external regulation if they can't get it right themselves. And there kind of has to be, uh, you know, I, can't, I, I never thought I would say this, but um, I think there has to be some sort of eye to producer protections. Because I think, you know, you've got the same situation now with journalists and suppliers of information um, as you had with, you know, farmers and supermarkets kind of in the, you know, 70s, in the 80s and 90s, which is you actually had, you know, food is, it's, it's kind of, it's like news. It's like a commodity business um, and you can get it from anywhere. Um, but it does have real sort of cultural uh, significance. And if you want to protect the people who produce it in a globalized world, you, you can't do that without some kind of mm -hmm. protection or subsidy. And maybe we don't, you know, again, we haven't really thought through what would it look like to have a reporter in every single state house? You know, what, yeah. what does it look like to make sure that everyone has high speed Wi-Fi? Uh, or, or what do these kind of what could new organisations look like that support journalists that do things that didn't need doing before, or that collect data, or whatever it is that they're going to do? Um, you mm -hmm. know, we haven't. We, we sort of we've been so, I think, sort of misguided in only looking at and waiting for a business solution yeah. to arrive. So uh, Facebook's obviously been under uh, the microscope for spreading misinformation um, and propaganda and all sorts of scarless things in the lead up to Brexit and then um, our election here and other elections. Um, and they've been very reticent about uh, actually playing the role of editing, if you will. Um, and I can sort of see that. Yeah. I think it's yeah. easy to do a knee-jerk reaction right. to to say, "Wow, they got to take responsibility for it." But then you're like, "Wait, Facebook's deciding what people, what kind of information?" Yeah, I mean, I've been pushing on the Facebook door, going, "But you're a publisher for yeah. um, three years, three or so more than three years, which they don't like very much." Um, and I actually had a good conversation with someone in policy at Facebook who said, why are you so obsessed with this definitional question? And I said, well, because actually I do think it really matters now in terms of uh, you're already deciding what people see. Facebook already decides what right. we see and all this kind of stuff about you decide yourself, Brian, just by selecting those stories, you are deciding yourself. Well, just because an engineer um, makes something doesn't make it value neutral. Of course, um, you know, the, the values are for some all, reason they don't get it. They're like, uh, 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 uh. values are baked into well, they because they think that efficiency, lack of latency, whatever you want to call it, um, is 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 the only thing that they're optimizing for, but of course, they're not. They're and they're incentivized to optimize for repetitive use, and they're incentivized to keep you and I in the app you know mm. and that and that's really what they're doing and the engineers who build products and are, are kind of brilliant brilliant at building products this has been as much a cultural shock to them to really think they, they don't want this responsibility and i think they're very earnest in um how they feel about it when they say we don't want this responsibility i think they don't feel qualified they're clearly not qualified they don't really know what's on their platform they don't really know how to control it they haven't thought of themselves as mm -hmm. having that kind of role but now they've got to do it so what would that look like though in practicality other than you know if they said okay uncle we're a publisher right 
what does that mean? Well, you know, I think that first of all, it means um, what kind of publishing risk are they prepared to take and what are the protections that they're, to, they're prepared to put around stuff that they publish. So that's the first thing. These are, these are just two policy decisions yeah. that you have to make, which is, and you can see it being made already on Google have already said, right, okay, you know, 4chan showed up in one of their kind of carousels. Um, so they changed their search algorithm um, in terms of how it connected to news sources and went back to being a bit more like Google News used to be in the old days. Marginal sites like Alternet saw their traffic like absolutely fall through the floor and mm -hmm. people were outraged and said, but you're now kind of punishing marginal sites, you know, by tweaking this algorithm and Google were like, well, I'm sorry, but, you know, we're cleaning up the platform. Right. So, so I think that sort of you, you have to make that decision about how are you going to take these? Are you doing it? Are you going to make decisions about how you classify content? So, you know, part of this is because there's been a complete flattening of what is content? So journalism doesn't look any different to advertising. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, who is, who is a publisher totally flattened, you know, um, a kind of a, a kid in, in Velish in Macedonia looks exactly like the New York Times. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's no kind of definitional nuance or in, in presentation or in how platforms think. They just think about content. They think about content and they think about users and revenue. Uh, they're going to, you know, they don't yeah. have to, they don't have to change that thinking. I think unless they change that thinking, um, their platforms eventually will just become yeah. unusable. But it seems like they're also, they're, they're just, they're taking a step back from the, they, they realize that they're, that they were playing too big of a role in the news industry, either by perception and reality. And it's like a lot of publishers complained about it. And now like they're, they're do you think though, I think they're not. So how are they stepping back? They're sending less traffic to people. Well, they're doing that, yeah. But they're, they're, they're like, they're, oh, you don't want yeah. us to play as big of a role? Fine. Like, right. I think if they could get rid of news on their platform, they would be fine with it. Well, if they could find other ways, like there's lots of things you can put in front of people to get yeah. them to engage. It does not have to be an, a news articles, that's for sure. Well, they moved the news articles out in six small markets. Yeah. And, I think they would love to get rid of it. And, and it cut, cut their traffic to like 30%. I think maybe that's healthy. I think maybe that's healthy. Yeah, for everyone. I think it's healthy for everyone. I think scale is completely overdone. It's, you know, the share as a metric is largely meaningless. Um, I think that kind of, you know, we've, and we've, we've sort of damaged ourselves in that as well. I think, you know, I'm a huge admirer of what BuzzFeed have done. I think they do some great journalism now. I think one thing that they did, which was really not a great service to either themselves or the rest of us, was really pushing this idea that shares are more meaningful, you know, that mm -hmm. virality is the root of really great content and user experience. But I would also even go farther because like, you know, Jonah was really good at figuring out that social platforms were about identity and about what it says about you or about what you want it to say about you and how you you, it, you feel and make a... And so all the content got made around that artifice. Right. Um, and that's, right. you know, I mean, yes, BuzzFeed does a lot of serious journalism and stuff like this, but that's like content marketing for like the real business. Uh, but it's all, and it's also interesting that, you know, sorry, this is the anecdote about my children because I guess it's like, it's, a, it's, the, it's the, the, you know, the, the, the kid, your kids are like the, 
cab drivers of the future so like when you never leave your apartment apart from to uber down to yeah, a okay. nice podcasting studio was like oh my uber driver said so when i'm it's thinking like about future Friedman media approach. it's like yeah exactly <laughs> i do actually do slightly more interviewing probably than tom Friedman. so 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 actually their very sort of precise targeting means that if you are for instance a 17 year old boy you never see any news from buzzfeed you only see the quizzes and the right. kind of the and the, and, the, and the listicles and the, so if you talk to my kids about like oh well you know kind of buzzfeed did a really great story on that they're like what you know i said like buzzfeed don't do news and of course it, it doesn't show you know it doesn't show up in their feeds because they're targeted like this is a 13 year old idiot who is only interested in skateboards and rap right so final uh topic um just to go a little bit deep on um trump um it's funny because he's had uh, he's attacked journalism so much, yet at the same time, by attacking it, he's also highlighted its utility. Right. It's right. like sort of a mixed picture if you look at Trump's it, impact bad, on journalism. Bad news, bad news is always good for yeah, journalism. This is a horrible, <laughs> dirty secret of the trade. Um, I remember, uh, I don't, I wasn't quite, um, I, I. So I was working as a, as a journalist in the UK at the end of, sort of Margaret Thatcher's um, administration. And I do remember that when she was booted out, uh, the left press, like the Daily Mirror and the Guardian, were all like, oh, shit, what are we going to do? You know, it's like, because because it was such a huge story. for and the, and the press became a kind of an effective opposition. And that's what's happening in a way with Trump. But with Trump, you have this different, this, this kind of Putin-esque... Um, playbook of constantly um undermining the credibility of journalism and don't forget that you know trump is really you know he's really an entertainer his 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 background is is hospitality and network television branding branding he's interested in ratings and branding and he's actually ferociously interested in what media brands do because that was the last kind of 12 years of his life yeah. before getting into politics he understood earned media before it was fashion he certainly did and um and and so this this kind of constant kind of boosting of fox this undermining of you know cnn or the failing new york times or whatever has this strongly oppositional effect which means that you know everybody is seeing increases in um their donations or their uh subscriptions so so even places yeah. like like propublica right they've, they've they've started to open offices outside new york for the first time because they're getting so many donations right um well to- i mean he's deeply unpopular i mean yeah. like the the yeah, truth he's- is if you're looking at the market fine he, he might 35 percent of the market might be nodding along with him and cheering but then there's 65 percent that is like oh no He's historically unpopular. I saw some figures, I think yesterday, about young Republicans saying how low his approval ratings are among young young Republicans. So I, th- I think in some ways that could be a help. I mean, if the majority of the market opposes that, then I think I think when it, whenever you have very polarizing political figures and particularly ones that take a kind of an interest in the media and we saw this with Berlusconi in, in, in Italy you do have a kind of an electrified you know the, the, the kind of the, the free press mm-hmm. um, becomes a kind of electrified oppositional um, being which suddenly engages much more kind of interest and support than it did before uh, and I think that you know kind of we see a real opportunity here for serious journalism to do all sorts of things which 
you know, that like kind of um, we've always talked in very sort of dry terms about, oh, events might be a good, you know, business opportunity for journalism. They're now not just kind of good business opportunities. They're like, you know, you, you see these events. I saw Tanasi Coates, who writes for The Atlantic, mm-hmm. who's a great kind of um, really probably one of America's best commentators on any subject, but particularly on race. He was reading extracts from his new book in Brooklyn. There was a queue down the road that was a mile long, and I think, okay, well, you know, oh, it's Brooklyn, it's but, 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 but I do think that people are hungry to meet up, talk about things, hear different perspectives. I don't think that you know we talk from a sort of lofty perches in academia and kind of New York-based media about local filter, but you know about filter bubbles and polarization. We've just done some research and kind of. Kentucky and Ohio and places like that um, and people were desperate to talk about fake news what was going on in kind of you know the sort of mm-hmm. local politics what they weren't finding out about they were really really engaged with the kind of the broader political conversation what it meant um, and news organizations have a great opportunity to really connect reconnect with communities at all levels and physically and online and through their physical products you know it's it should be a really 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 fantastic time um i think it's you know the the problem is it's happening at the same time as you just have this bewildering disruption and really fast pace of change in the structural business part of it so you go to into any newsroom or news organization even the successful ones at the moment people are i mean you know people are kind of i think excited by it but they're also really exhausted <laughs> it's like yeah it's it's a kind of it's a difficult time to drag those businesses through what might be another two or three years of this kind of absolute sort of nonstop mayhem. Okay. On that somewhat optimistic note. That is optimistic. We're going to leave it there. (laughs) Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Brian. And thank you all for listening. And we'll be back next week. (laughs) 